I sometimes laugh when I think about what Paul might have been like as a monarch pastor. Can you imagine how terrible that would be? You guys think I'm long-winded? I can imagine Paul on Monday afternoon, uh, he sees a message in Planning Center. That's the tool that we use to plan this morning, this 1030 to, uh, at this point, 1230 uh, type service. Can you imagine him opening up Planning Center and there's a subject line that says, worship serving planning. Paul, naturally, it's, his interest is piqued. Worship service planning sounds right up his alley. He eagerly opens up the message board, which includes the worship pastor, the vocal team, the AV team, and the church communications team. He sees a post from the worship pastor that reads, we need to plan the worship service for this week. Any thoughts? Paul smiles and says to himself, any thoughts? Oh boy, do I have thoughts. He begins pounding out a reply on his keyboard. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Paul. The worship pastor writes back, LOL. Good one, Paul. But I meant, what do we want to do in worship service this week? Paul scratches his beard, confused, and writes back, well, dot, dot, dot. We need to do whatever it takes not to be conformed to this world and be transformed by the renewal of our minds. The worship pastor responds, sure, okay. But is there anything we need to add to the service agenda? Paul answers, maybe I don't understand your question, but you should probably add what is good and acceptable and perfect to whatever you're planning to do. At this point, the AV guy mercifully steps in. Hey guys, I think we should show that video clip about small groups. I don't know why I changed to like California accent. I just imagine AV guys like that. <laughs> it's been a while since we've shown it and it would be super easy for the team to throw it up there. The worship pastor answers back, Great idea. That will go well with the small group ministry kickoff that's happening later this, this week. Well, one of the vocalists decides to pipe in. I think we need to change the chord progression to that song we practiced. Its tempo is a little too fast, and a few of us can keep up with it. The AV guy comes back on and says, oh, and I'm going to start the service. I've totally lost whatever accent I was doing. I'm going to start the service countdown clock a little earlier so that people will get settled in sooner. Someone else responds, that's great. Let's just make sure that service doesn't run long like it did last week. Now, at this point, Paul realizes he has absolutely no idea what these people are talking about. This is not at all when he, what he had in mind when he read the words worship service planning in his email box. Now, to be, to be clear, I have nothing against worship service planning meetings. As a pastor, I've been to many of them, some of them more fruitful than others, and they play an important role in providing a gospel-centered opportunity for people to worship corporately on Sundays. However, I think it's worth acknowledging that how Paul would understand the term worship service and the way in which the modern church tends to use that phrase are two very different concepts. 
we tend to think of a worship service as a timed event. Like what is our worship ser- what time does our worship service start? 10:30. When does it end? Well, most of you should are probably thinking in 10 minutes you're going to be thoroughly disappointed. But it's a timed event that has a beginning whenever the countdown clock hits 0 and an end really whenever the AV time throws up there it's time and start making kill signals. However, as we'll see in Romans 12, 1 through 2, our worship service is not something we attend. It's not a once a week event. Instead, worship service is all that we are and do in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to scripture, your entire life is meant to be a worship service lived for the Lord. So I just think it's, it, it's worth addressing our vocabulary and the way that we think of things. We came to worship service this week. My friends, you might have been here five minutes early to the worship service. If your whole life this week hasn't been that, then you're already late. The whole week is to be a worship service where everything is intentionally, thoughtfully, carefully planned out so that we live for God's glory Let's review where we've been so far because we're coming up on a little bit of a transition here in Romans. Paul has spent the last 11 chapters outlining the truth of the gospel. He's exposed our sin. He's declared all of us worthy of judgment, regardless of whether we're Jew or Gentile. He has shown that both Jews and Gentiles are in desperate need of justification provided through Christ. Now, accordingly, Jesus' death and resurrection were not just events, not just occurrences. They were the means by which God has declared us righteous despite our inherent guilt. And we receive this justification not through works or any other external means, but by faith alone. Faith makes us right with God. Faith brings us into the family of God. That's been the point so far. Now, having walked through the gospel message, this justification by faith and all of its implications... Paul makes a subtle transition into application. What are we to do in light of the truths we have read from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11? That's essentially how we should be reading the therefore in Romans 12.1. Paul's message about justification by faith demands something of you. It's not just true. It is true. But it's a truth that is compelling you to a certain way of living. To a certain way of acting. As he's already said, the gospel is not based on anything you do. It's not based on works. However, if you truly understand the gospel, then the gospel governs everything you do and all the way you live. So in this section of Romans, Paul begins to outline the applications that come from the gospel. He begins to, he begins to apply how justification by faith should shape our worship and devotion to God as well as our relationship with other people. It's worth noting uh, the order of Paul's progression. He doesn't jump straight in into, hey, be nice to each other, because the gospel's true, love each other. He, he's going to get there. But he begins first by addressing our relationship with the, with the Lord. In this way, he's being consistent with Jesus' own understanding of the law, which said that the first and greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, to love God others, right? To love others as you love yourself. 
But there is a progression there. These two things are equally true, but they're not equal in the sense of they're on the same plane. The first and greatest commandment is to love God. The second commandment is to love others. Without love for God, you cannot love others. If you cannot love others, it is indicative that you might not love God. One's the fountainhead, the source, and the other is the stream. So he's going to address first love God. That's why he doesn't just make a statement. He doesn't just give another indicative or another imperative. He gives an urgent appeal. I appeal to you. I urge you. I beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So we're going to treat first things first. We're not going to delve straight into application of how to live with each other. We're going to first delve into how do we interact with God? What does our relationship with God look like? You know, we could write 10 steps to being a better church member or, you know, 10 steps to being a better husband. But the fact of the matter is, is until you first address your worship with the Lord, you will never have a hope of stopping losing your temper. You will never have a hope of stopping gossip. You will never have a hope of stopping divisiveness. It all must come back to loving God first and then loving others flows from that. So that's where he gets to in Romans chapter 12, one and two, he addresses powerfully our relationship with God. And then in the next several weeks, he begins to outline how our relationship with God flows into a relationship with others. So at the end of the day, at the end of this sermon, We all should be left asking this question of one-to-one in the audience and presence of God. How do I stand? How does my life stand with him? Otherwise, your marriage can wait. Your parenthood could wait. That sounds wrong to say, but you will never be the parent God has called you to be if you don't worship God as he has saved you to do. You'll never be the husband he's called you to be until you learn to live in love for God because it's by his love that we even know what love is. Then the Bible say, by this we know love that Christ died for us. So unless we're taking our cues first, we're mixing the fruit and the root. We address the root first, love for God. And then we'll talk about all the ways that we gossip and divide and divide over opinions and hate one another and bicker and all these other things that come in Romans chapter 12 through 13. But let's return this idea of our lives as a worship service, as an actual service to the Lord. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is his urgent appeal and it's made on the basis of the gospel and the appeal is that your bodies will be a living sacrifice it's a lot to unpack in this passage first think about the action he's calling you to do okay the concept of presenting something means to put that thing whatever it is at someone else's full disposal right to to hand it over in other words that's how you present it right you give it to them Though the thing may be mine, when I present it, I am surrendering it up for someone else's use and will. They can do with it as they please when I present it to them. 
Now, what exactly are we called to put at God's disposal? What is it that we're to hand over, so to speak? Well, the object he calls us to hand over is, guess what? Your bodies. What does the word bodies entail? Well, it means all of you, all the members of your body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth, your brain, and everything else from the top of your head down to the bottom of your foot, that's, that's his. Everything inside out is his, and we hand it over to his disposal. But not just the members of our body, but what we do with them, eating, drinking, speaking, sexuality, every other action we do is to be placed explicitly at God's disposal. Now, this verse has often been misused, right? Um, uh, and, and it's been used as a, as a weapon. Uh, it's worth emphasizing that Paul is not talking about what your bodies look like. Presenting your body as an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord has nothing to do with whether you have a six-pack or can wear a size two dress. Thank God. <laughs> has nothing to do with that. I even think that when people say your bodies are a temple of the Lord, sometimes they misunderstand that and have different implications of that. Has God, I just want to be clear. God is not shooting in this passage for attractive bodies. He's shooting for obedient, faithful lives. There's a lot of attractive bodies out there that are not worshipful, not living as a sacrifice. Our body is not the end in of itself. It is supposed to become the vehicle through which God's mercy, God's holiness, God's glory is displayed to all the world. That's what the body is meant to do. Now, I, I think that's helpful in thinking of my hands and my eyes and my mouth and my nose and my, my brain, my heart, where my feet go, how fast they get there. Literally, am I running to these certain places? how quickly my knees bend to get to where God wants me to go. All those things, knees, feet, ankle joints, elbows, everything as a tool, an instrument. This goes back to what Paul says in Romans 6, 13. Do not present your members, literally the, the, your phalanges, your whatever, yeah, that's about as far as my biology goes. Your phalanges and all these other things. Do not present those things as what? Tools for unrighteousness, instruments of sin. Instead, we present them as instruments for righteousness. Think about how invasive Paul's appeal is to you. Now, we, like, we, like, we, we tend to live in a world where Christianity belongs in churches, doesn't it? This is where Christianity exists. It should be contained to Sunday morning from that 10.30 to maybe today, 1210 uh, timeline. And then you leave it in the seat when you leave. You, you just leave it there. It's not meant to go with you. And I wish I could say it was just non-believers. I wish I could say it was just the world that tended to view Christianity that way, but it's not. We, we professing believers sometimes treat it that way. As if this is where our faith happens. This is the compartment in these walls where our faith is practiced and lived, my faith is whatever denomination I belong to or what church I attend, but it has nothing to do with who I choose to sleep with in my bed. It has nothing to do with what I choose to watch on my phone or what I spend money on or how I choose to speak to those around me. I just want to be clear about this. According to Paul, there is no compartmentalized faith. 
There is no paradigm of the Christian life where believers can have a privatized faith that has bounds only on Sunday morning and not on the rest of the week. It is wrong for us to think about Sunday belongs to the Lord. He can have whatever's in that timeline. But Monday through Saturday is mine. No aspect of the Christian life can we say, this is his and that is mine and he can have this, but I'm gonna keep this. No aspect of that. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God has called you to give everything over to his disposal. Your 401k at his disposal. How you use your hands at his disposal. How you tweet at his disposal. Everything. Absolutely everything. It's a matter of urgency. Our bodies and how they behave, everything over to him. Paul compares this presentation of our bodies by using the metaphor of a living sacrifice. It's a strange metaphor because you know what is generally true about sacrifices? They don't live, right? They're, they're meant to be slaughtered. I don't know if you guys have seen sacrifices. When, when we were missionaries, we, we got to witness um, Gorbon where there were sacrifices and it's nasty, bloody. They don't stop until the animal is absolutely dead. And here Paul uses that imagery that would have been common for Israelites to have a, a mental picture of and says, yeah, you guys are like living sacrifices. Sacrifices that are as good as dead, meaning that you no longer just act out of your own will. You are handed over, presented. You belong to God. But he allows you to live in his will and in his way. Now, I, I can't help but think what kind of sacrifice or offering Paul might have in mind here. I don't think it's an atoning sacrifice. He's already said that Jesus' death is all the atoning you will ever need, right? So, so you guys are not your own Passover sacrifice. But I think he might have in mind a Thanksgiving offering, an offering given wholly to the Lord as an act of gratitude of everything that God has done. Thanksgiving offerings are given in response to God's redemptive work and kindness. Because he's been kind, because he's been good, we give these offerings. Now, back in the day, it was grain or animals. Now it's us. We're grateful for what God has done. And therefore, we hand it over. Walking, talking, living sacrifices. Living lambs that have already been put on the altar and handed over to God. How cool is that? That's what we've been called to be. We're not our own. As Paul says, we've been what? Bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. Now, what would it mean to live in that way? Well, Paul says it would mean to live holy, which means set apart for God and acceptable to God. A life presented as a living sacrifice is a life lived for God's pleasure, for whatever it is that delights him. That's how this life should be lived. Has that singular focus of whatever it is that God wants, that's what he should get from us. However he wants me to father, it doesn't matter how angry the kids make me. The way that he wants me to father, that's what he should get. The way that he wants me to husband, that's what he should get. The way that he wants me to speak to others, that's what he should get. Why? Because of look at everything he's done. Give him what he wants in gratitude and in thanksgiving. Now, according to Paul, he calls this our spiritual worship. Now, if you were to do 
for you Greek lovers, if you were to do a direct translation of that phrase, spiritual worship can also be rendered our reasonable service or our logical service. It's just, it's just doing this thing that makes sense. A life handed over to God's disposal to do with as he pleases simply makes sense in light of what he has done. Your whole life, everything, what you choose to do with your hands, your whole life is the worship service he wants. It's the worship service through which he can be delighted and pleased with. When you pray, scripture compares your prayers to sweet smelling fragrance, like the old style incense burning in his court. That's how he sees prayer. It smells good to him. Our hands are no longer to make fists, but become, in Paul's words, holy instruments raised in prayer and worship. That's 1 Timothy 2.8. Our feet identify us as beautiful messengers of the gospel. Our mouths become fountains of blessings for others. And whatever we do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. My friends, just think about the last conflict you had. Could you put Jesus's name on it? The way that you spoke to your spouse on the way to church this morning, could you put Jesus's name on it? If not, don't do it. <laughs> That's the simple reality. Whatever we do, Jesus should be able to sign his name to it and be like, oh yeah, that's totally from me. I've made a lot of Facebook posts, a lot of Twitter posts. I've, I've spoken to my wife and children. I've spoken to, to, to some of you, to my friends and family and all kinds of ways, in ways that Jesus would never attach his name to. We know what that's called, right? sin. But the goal of the Christian life is to live in such a way that we increasingly, whatever we do in both word and deed, whatever we actually do to people or however we speak to people, that increasingly it becomes clear that Jesus's name could be attached to it. And it reflects him. So again, I think it's good. And we're even commanded to come to corporate worship services like this. Hebrews 10, 25 says, do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together. So, so to come to a worship service is commanded by God. But the New Testament also holds out that your whole life, from the moment you leave this place to the moment you come back, is meant to be a worship service as well. It's meant to be a life lived in careful intentionality. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly, but we should live carefully. When we, when we plan the worship service here, we think about what songs we're gonna sing. We're not just gonna get up and do the hokey pokey, right? It's not like we just have to sing anything. No, we have to sing certain things. We don't, we don't just sing our favorite love song to each other, do we? We sing praise songs, songs that are about Jesus' death and resurrection and what God has done for us. We don't just come up here and give any kind of speech. I mean, I'm sure I could shoot off the hip on any kind of TED talk. You can ask my wife. I don't stop talking most of the time. But it's not just that I'm called to speak or talk. I'm called to speak certain things. 
That kind of intentionality that goes, okay, we're not just gonna fill up an hour of talking and singing. We're gonna intentionally sing words that matter. We're gonna preach words that matter. We're gonna do things together that matter. We're not just gonna high five each other and grin at each other, but we're gonna delve deep into life together. That kind of intentionality needs to be present when you wake up next to your wife on Monday morning. That kind of intentionality needs to be present when you speak about others around you when they're not there. Your whole life is the worship service God wants. How do we go about this service? Having heard how Paul has described our bodies as a living sacrifice and that our lives are the reasonable worship service that the Lord wants, how do we go about doing this worship service on the day today? Paul answers in verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, here Paul assumes something that we oftentimes overlook. You are always being shaped by something. Always being shaped by something. Either you are becoming more and more like the world and are, or you are being renewed into the image of Christ. Every day, every choice, everything you say and do pushes you in the direction of either assimilation or transformation. Either you look more like the world or you look more like Christ. When you watch Fox News, you might be assimilating. When you watch CNN, you might be assimilating. When you tweet, you might be assimilating. Every choice you make every single day pushes you in assimilation or transformation. Paul assumes you're always being molded every single second of the day. Either what you do undermines and breaks down the work that God is building up or it builds upon the work that he's doing. I love the way C.S. Lewis did this, and I've read this quote before in sermons, and so I hope you guys will be able to memorize it by the time my tenure as pastor is done. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before, taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices All your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God, with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is at a state of war and hatred with God and its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. At this moment, there's no middle ground on this, is there? Either you're assimilating more and just critique your own attitude here, critique your own heart, critique your own action, critique your own words. If Jesus wouldn't stand in the room and tolerate it, if Jesus couldn't stand it, if he would rebuke you as he oftentimes rebuked his disciples for things, the only response then is to repent. 
and to stop doing those things and not to be like, well, that's just me. No, that's called assimilation and it's very, very dangerous. You're not called to conform. You're not called to become complacent with, I just have some quirkiness, so I tell people off. No, that's not okay. Every time you do, you're not staying stagnant. It's not just the same old Justin telling people off. No, it's Justin getting worse and worse and worse into a different direction. You're either being transformed or you're being conformed. And the goal of the Christian life is to reject, to refuse to be shaped by the world And as Eugene Peterson once wrote, to engage in a long obedience in the same direction. Guess what direction that is? Toward transformation. We do not take our cues from society or culture, but instead we commit ourselves to following Christ, his way of doing things. We don't take our cues from those that we agree with most. We take our cues from our Lord, the one that died for us, the one who rose again and secured life for us. We take our cues from him so that we won't be assimilated. I think we're uh, naive to how often this does. we do this. We, we tend to think of it in terms of positions and camps and actions and deeds and all these kinds of things. But my friends, just a few minutes of watching news clips can transform you into a totally different person than you were five minutes ago. 10 seconds on Twitter transforms me into a gremlin. We're, we're, we're naive to how this works, right? We, we are always being shaped into something. We are like spiritual chameleons that match whatever background we're in. And the goal is to not do that, but to actually go in the opposite direction of transformation. Now, I'm not talking about cultural rejection, not wholesale cultural rejection. There's a place for cultural engagement. What I'm talking about here is even our propensity on both the right and the left and wherever else you fall in between and all denominations that exist, both men and women, to continue to undermine the way that we are being morphed, rolled up like silly putty and changed, either disformed or transformed into one image or another. And I think we have to be aware of that at every single moment of the day. Some of you who are sitting here quietly with a smile on your face will be conformed into a totally different person while you watch the Cowboys at noon. We're always shifting from assimilation and transformation and the goal of the Christian life is to be committed to that transformation. Even if it means the embarrassing work of repenting of our cantankerousness. One of the most beautiful things I've ever heard is an old lady once who knew she was a bit of a gossip who knew that she was uh, quite cranky at some points. And as she grew in her Christian life, you'd hear her say things more like, she'd gripe somebody out, she'd go, oh, I did it again, I'm sorry, I've been cranky. Can you pray with me? I have a cranky heart. How beautiful is that? Typically, we just drop bombs and walk away, and she's like, she at least dropped a bomb and goes, ooh, can I get you a Band-Aid? Even that is transformation. Now, eventually, she might stop dropping bombs. And that's good. But we want that transformation. And it's not just about attacking what we do. Paul is constantly pointing us not just to our deeds, but the thought 
behind it. That's why he, he put so much emphasis on being committed to having a renewed mind. Transformation comes from a renewed mind. Attacking the way you think. I get the great pleasure of meeting with young guys that, and we've got some studs around here at the church. You know, just amazing young men. Anytime I meet with young guys that have struggles with sin, any particular sin they might have, might be pride, it might be arrogance, it might be conceit, it might be pornography, it might be whatever. There are things that they can do immediately to stop these behaviors. But it's not the, just the behavior. It's about the root of how they think about things. You want to know how to help someone out of pornography? You don't just take away their computer, get them set up on covenant eyes and shame blast them every time that they fall. You attack the way they think about flesh and blood people. You go after the way they think. You go after, the way, you go after their value system. I know many of men uh, who have repented from pornography when they realized that it could have been very well their friend's daughter that they were looking at. Attack the way that people think. Attack the way that, that our value systems are. That is, that is how we do it. We do it with ourselves. How do you stop cr- losing it with your wife and kids? You've got to attack the way you think. It's the renewal of the mind, not the changing of behavior. Because let's face it, you could go from shouting to mumbling and still not have a difference. The way that we change is by coming to Christ for the renewal of the mind. Well, how do we do that? We've got three different basic things. There's probably more, but there's three things. They may not seem all that novel to you, but I think the first is prayer. Prayer is applied dependence upon God. Have you ever thought about what we're doing when we pray and what we're saying when we don't? Paul Miller, he wrote a great book. If you just Amazon Google his name, Paul Miller, um, uh, he argues that when we fail to pray, it is likely due to some kind of quiet confidence that other things can help us, right? We, we don't pray until the money runs out. We don't pray until the job is threatened. We don't pray until the health is threatened. And that is indicative of the fact of what prayerlessness actually is. It's, it's this quiet confidence and arrogance that other things other than God can help us. Well, in prayer, what are we doing? We're engaging our mind and heart to attack the arrogance. In a committed prayer life, what we're doing is we're, we're engaging the mind and heart in such a way that it is forced to reckon with its neediness. It's forced to reckon with its dependency. We whip the mind back into shape through prayer, going, I know you think you can handle it today. You can't. All this nonsense about God doesn't give us more than we can handle is a bunch of load of Whatever. It's not true. And prayer reminds us every day that that's not true. Prayer whips our minds and our hearts into shape to say we are dependent upon God. And guess what happens? The more you pray, the more your mind is whipped into shape. It gets the message eventually. You are absolutely dependent upon the Lord. Now, second... The Lord has ordained scripture as a means of renewal. I'm not just talking about reading the Bible. Reading is certainly important. I know a lot of people that read the Bible and get nothing out of it. Reading the Bible is great. We should read the Bible. 
I'm talking about reading and meditating on it. Why do we come to the word of God? To see Jesus in it. The Bible's about Jesus. It tells us what to do. It tells us uh, what's right, how to get right. It tells us how to stay right even. I mean, it tells us all these different things, but predominantly it teaches us who Jesus is. It's in the scriptures that we behold the glory of Christ, that we see his death and resurrection afresh. It's in the scriptures and by beholding his glory that we do what? Guess what Paul says? We transform, we go from one degree of glory to another. Through the scriptures. Have you ever thought about your Bible doing that? As you read and you read to understand and you read to see Jesus, that you are being shaped. It's not by applying a whole bunch of things that you change your life. It's by beholding. Remember in my early days, we were like, I wish you just had more applications. You, you talk a lot about Jesus, but tell us, and the guy that told it to me, tell, teach us how to, who should plunge the toilet. That's all well and fine. You won't even plunge the toilet until you behold Jesus who plunged the toilet of your heart. You cannot change until you behold Jesus. One day you'll behold him face to face and be completely changed and perfected. Until then, you have the word of God where you can behold his glory. So we come in prayer and we come to the word of God. And then finally, we engage in relationships with others in a Christian community together. That's what we try to do in small groups and life groups. Worship service is great, but guess what? We can't know you here. And you can't know us in this kind of setting like this. This is like coming and watching a movie. It's good for you. You're, you're getting hopefully truths and thoughts that will be formative. God, God has given preaching a role that is absolutely essential in the church. But until you engage with other believers who know you, who can sift through your facade, who can look behind your smiling face, who, can, who are not all that impressed with you, until you get around believers like that, you won't be transformed in the way that God wants you to be transformed. Just think about all the things that happen when we get together. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. We stir one another up very rarely outside of the context of a Christian community. Is it, is it, it, it almost always ends in stirring up or provocation, but rarely for good, right? But in Hebrews 10, 24, it says that we stir one another. We provoke each other. To what? Love and good works. <laughs> that, that's an amazing, I mean, his, his usage there of that word is intentional. We're literally provoking each other to love and good works. And in doing so, we're transforming each other. We're like the rocks in the rock polisher that just kind of keep nudging each other closer and closer to love and doing what God has called us to do. You look at Hebrews 3.13, we're called to help each other from becoming hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. We serve each other as Christ has served us. We rescue each other from the devastation of sin. Galatians 6.1, gospel community is God's gracious gift meant to transform you. And it means having friends in your life, Christians in your life, saying, you're wrong about this. We run from that. But we shouldn't because that is the way in which we are transformed is somebody says, you might be right, but you're not loving about it. 
I understand you think you had the right. You don't, I, I know what you're saying when you say, you just don't understand what my wife does to me. I hear you. You're still wrong. You still don't have the right to leave her. I mean, we, we've got, I think sometimes we think that people will just be impressed and, and that they'll just jump on our side. My friends, I hope you don't have that in your life, that you're filled with people that just tell you how right you are. The Christian community is where we're all seeing, we're seeing our sin. We're seeing redemption. We're seeing the gospel. People point it out and then they proclaim the good news to us. How great it is. It's like those commercials of the sweet and sour patch kids, right? At first they're sour. Yes, it, it stinks to be called arrogant. Have you ever been called arrogant? That hurts. It stinks to be called stubborn or defensive. It stinks to be called a know-it-all. But how sweet it is when they're like, yeah, but Jesus died for even that. And through his spirit, you don't have to be that anymore. I mean, it's not just about blasting each other. It's about tearing down walls and facades and opening up blind eyes to see things that they can't see. We all have fatal flaws, blind spots that we see one way, but is in reality different. And it's in the Christian community that all the masks should fall off and we see things for what it is. And we come to Jesus for healing. That, those three things, prayer, scripture, and Christian community are how we renew our mind every day. This is how we come to Jesus. And it takes time and consistency. It's not going to be perfect. Transformation is gradual, sometimes slow. Sometimes it comes in spurts, but most of the time it's slow. And oftentimes, if not always, painful. Yet, because the gospel is true, such transformation is our reasonable worship service. Now let's end with this. What's the goal? If the gospel's true and we're called to do these things, what's the goal? He says in verse two, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Why do we submit ourselves in this worship? So that we can know and do what is good, perfect, and acceptable to God. Can you imagine what a church life might look like when everybody was open to being transformed? Chip away whatever needs to be chipped away. Break down whatever barriers need to break down. Let, let my reputation go. Let, let people's impressiveness with me go. Let, let my power, let my strength, let my arrogance, let all that go. Can you imagine what would happen if we all came to the same table ready to be transformed, ready to know and do what is good, acceptable, and perfect with each other? What kind of community could that be? Might just be one that glorifies God. So my friends, thank you for coming to the worship service today. My prayer is that your worship service will continue on into the afternoon to tomorrow and Tuesday and that you will take time to think and consider what is your reasonable worship service as you live with your wife, your kids, by yourself, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your church members, and do things that Jesus' name can be attached to.
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love. We just pray that you will uh, continue to help us, Father, be transformed, that we won't be assimilated into the world's image, Father, but that we'll be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we come to you in dependence, through prayer, as we behold the glory of Jesus in Scripture, and as we come to each other in community. We are imperfect. Father, even myself this morning, not ready not reflecting, not glorifying the way I should, and yet basking in the gospel because of your goodness with people who do the same. Thank you, Father, for the great truth you've given us, that we are right with you by faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone. Now, Lord, let us live out a reasonable worship service this week. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.